1: King Herod, even though he was considered by both Jews and Christians to be a bad person, has somehow risen to a national hero within the context of um, contemporary Israeli politics.
0: Things can get weird when political forces start to bend the past to their wishes for today. Professor Katerina Galor, an archaeologist who has done a lot of excavation in Israel, and the author of The Archaeology of Jerusalem, takes us through the history of Jerusalem from its Canaanite beginnings to the capital of Israel today. In the process, Kati talks about the politics of digging up the past in the Holy Land. And finally, we turn to the problematic German miniseries Unorthodox that was so popular on Netflix recently, and its portrayal of traditional Hasidic Jews in New York and progressive Germans in Berlin. Welcome to Almost Good Catholics, a conversation about theology and apologetics, about religion and culture. I'm your host, Chris Udinitz, and I get to ask interesting people who have thought about the big questions to share their conclusions, to explain what we know, how we know it, why we think we know it. I hope this format, in relationship and dialogue and back and forth, may help us approach the truth and have a really good time doing it. And should you want to take the conversation a step further, I invite you to please email me at almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. Professor Kati Galor is an archaeologist at the Program in Judaic Studies at Brown University. She's also taught at Hebrew University of Jerusalem and the École Biblique et Archaeologique Française in Jerusalem and Tufts University. She's conducted excavations in Israel, in Italy, and in France, and she's the author of The Archaeology of Jerusalem, From the Origins to the Ottomans, 2013. That's the book we're talking about today also of Finding Jerusalem, Archaeology Between Science and Ideology, 2017, and most recently, The Moral Triangle, Germans-Israelis-Palestinians, 2020, which we will be talking about as well. So welcome, Professor Galore.
1: Good morning, uh, Chris. It's a a great pleasure and an honor to be talking to you about my work. Um, I'm looking forward to to the discussion.
0: Terrific. I have a... Uh, I have a bad uh, archaeology joke, which is: I understand you're an archaeologist, which means your career is in ruins.
1: Exactly. <laughs> <Yes>.
0: <laughs> so, your book, "The Archaeology of Jerusalem from Origins to the Ottomans," is is an absolute delight, and it's really written for the general reader. It has many pictures, it has maps, it has diagrams. The text is pleasing; it has broad margins, and you tell a thousand, you tell thousands of years of history in just a couple hundred pages. Archaeology in Jerusalem really starts in the 19th century and picks up after the fall of the Ottoman Empire. So I was surprised how young a field it is and how much of it is happening right now. And you say something that there's like 1700 uh, excavations that have happened just in the last century. So what is it like digging up the past in the Holy Land? And how did you get into this? How did you get into this career?
1: Um... Almost by coincidence. The first time I uh, participated in excavation, I was part of a youth group coming to Israel um, from Germany, and I excavated near um, the old city walls within the um, old city of Jerusalem. And um, and then... Um, When I moved to France, um, after finishing high school in Germany, I started uh, to study art history and archaeology, and I became increasingly interested in um, making parallels between the past and the present. And uh, for me, it was, for me personally, it was also very much tied to a quest for my own origins and for my connection to jewish history and um i think there is nothing more convincing and moving for me than holding history in your hands i'm very much a visual person and um i know that most people think uh, they can come closest to understanding the past by uh, reading scriptures by reading texts. Um, many people respond more to words. Um, for me personally, I, I I I enjoy reading texts. Of course, I mean otherwise I wouldn't be writing. Otherwise I wouldn't be an academic. But but I I also respond very strongly and perhaps most strongly to everything that is visual and material. So for me. Um, conducting a dialogue about identity, history, faith, uh, Judaism, Judaism in dialogue with Christianity and Islam, uh, Judaism in dialogue with, uh, with history, with texts, and with politics um, is something that uh, I've always been very, very fascinated by.
0: hmm mm-hmm. and- One of the things that I most enjoy about your book and about archaeology in general is that the artifacts will tell us a story that people don't often think of to write down. The things that they don't realize are important, but we, a thousand, two thousand, three thousand years later, find super interesting. So in your book, we learn a bit, uh, quite a bit about daily history of people. Um, And you describe and include many pictures of ordinary people's dwellings frescoes, mosaics, jewelry found in tombs, little oil lamps and dishes. I learned from you that um, stone stone dishes, stone um, uh, eat, eatingware eating and cookware could be preferred because it didn't need to be purified by kosher rules like uh, ceramics. And there was so much limestone next to Jerusalem. Um, you, you show us about water systems, tunnels, baths and pools from the ancient mikveh to the Ottoman Hammam. Um, so, what are some of the most interesting discoveries that you have made about people that they would not have thought to share with us and that um, you enjoy sharing with people today? So, for me,
1: I, I believe initially when I started to carry out excavations and then also later on co-direct and direct my own excavations, I um, I, I was mostly interested in the stories that an object could tell, but increasingly I was aware that the objects um, can only only have a, a limited voice in telling stories, and that it's actually um, the the archaeologist and the context of an excavation that very much determines our understandings of the voices that are in the object, that are in artifacts, architectures, and sites. And I've become um, increasingly aware of how dependent um, the interpretation of an archaeological um, site depends on, on the context and depends on the individual archaeologist and also the archaeologist, uh, archaeologist's archaeologists. Own background and um, the context in which uh, the archaeology has studied and learned and um, developed as a professional. And so actually, when I was approached by Yale University Press um, to write this book, uh, to write the survey book on the archaeology of Jerusalem, I was already very conscious about the fact um, that I didn't come as a neutral observer or that as an archaeologist you carry uh, a certain um, perspective and uh, that it can influence uh, your interpretation of certain sites um, I was trained uh, mostly in France but also in Israel and to some extent in in the US by mostly Jewish and um, uh, Israeli archaeologists, and I was very much aware that um, um, this school of thought carries a very um, specific context, um, um, which is not without influence of um, Zionist ide- ideology and mm-hmm. uh, the Israeli desire, even in the current context, to, to educate um, um, Israelis and, and the world about the connection of this very young state um, with a past that is more than 2,000 years old. Mm-hmm. And so rather than writing this book by myself, I, um, I actually reached out to a, a colleague, uh, Hans-Wolf Blöthorn, who at the time was the, the director of the German Archaeological Institute in Jerusalem, and who was trained in, in a very different school who um, had many more context on the Palestinian side and um, so I, I wanted to make sure that my knowledge and my perspective um, is 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 um, um, not necessarily countered, but that there is an additional voice from a person who comes from a different perspective. I think I, I became very sensitive to this question of objectivity and subjectivity in archaeological inter- interpretation because I started to work to... My my teaching career began in two places in Jerusalem. When I finished my PhD, I, I taught for... Uh, four years in the Rothberg School for uh, overseas students at the Hebrew University, where I had mostly Jewish and to some extent Christian students, but it was an Israeli institution. And I um, also started to um, to work and teach at the same time at the École Biblique Archéologique Française in each, East Jerusalem that um, had a number of... Um, Um, students um, coming from the background of biblical studies and uh, theology, Christian theology, some academics from France, but also Palestinian students. Mm -hmm. And and in both places, I was asked to teach the same subject, uh, the archaeology of Jerusalem and the archaeology of Palestine. But I was very much aware that... Given the different context, the the classes were called differently. I mean, in, on the Israeli side, it was called the the archaeology of Eretz Israel, and mm-hmm. on the Palestinian side in East Jerusalem, it was referred to as the archaeology of Palestine. And
0: <laughs> um,
1: and also, I yes, and and also I realized that the po- religious and political sensitivities among my students. Um, were very different, and um, and so I felt um, that I had to be uh, very sensitive to these uh, different perspectives and these different sensitivities and beliefs and alliances, um, and um, so I was determined uh, from the very beginning of my teaching career and also my uh, my research to do justice to the different views and voices and perspectives and to try as much as possible uh, to, to stick to facts
0: mm-hmm. and
1: to stick to the data and not let my own perspective carry me away or let me influence and and how i understand visual mat- material culture and Putting this as my goal actually made me realize how much um, archaeology, probably um, not only in Israel, but especially in Israel, Palestine, especially in the context of Jerusalem, uh, have been shaped by uh, by religion
0: mm-hmm. and
1: by political aspirations from the very beginning of archaeological fieldwork in uh, the mid 19th century to the very present and it has obviously become more complicated in the context of the Israeli Palestinian conflict
0: yeah i can really feel that in these pages and um, i'm sure that was difficult to speak to both uh, groups of students at the same time about the same thing, but clearly it has trained you to think um, in this way. So maybe why don't you tell us uh, briefly the story of uh, Jerusalem, just the facts, just the facts. Uh, And it begins as a mountain fortress, which, uh, you know, most places are by the water. But uh, um, I learned from you that Jerusalem is up in these mountains, which in the, you know, in the Bible, um, everybody's always going up, to Jerusalem, you know, or down to Jericho, that sort of thing. Um, yeah. And this was only made possible because there's a spring there, the, the Gihon, and it was founded as a defensible fortress for the Canaanites. And tell tell us a bit about the yeah. where so, did Jerusalem come from?
1: Yes. So you already mentioned uh, the Gihon Spring, which was the only freshwater source available, which is really the, the key point for any ancient uh, settlement. I mean, the um, location on a hill is is a second component. Even though in uh, Jerusalem, that elevation is a little bit compromised because the original Canaanite bronze and Iron Age city was actually located um, not at the highest spot. Hmm. Um, so so in in. in in the case of Jerusalem, the proximity to the um, Gihon Spring, to uh, the only fresh water source, was actually more important than the height. Um, so the the location of the Bronze and Iron Age city, the Canaanite city, and the city of David, are located actually outside of the current boundaries of Jerusalem's Old City, which is to the south of the Temple Mount platform or the Haram al-Sharif, which is not the highest spot. And neither is, by the way, um, the Temple Mount platform, the Haram al-Sharif. The Western Hill, uh, the area today occupied by the uh, Jewish and uh, Christian quarter, are actually located at a higher spot Uh, than the Temple Mount, which is also quite unusual for an old city. Usually uh, the Acropolis is like the Acropolis in Athens, for Mm -hmm. example, in in ancient Greek and Roman cities, the Acropolis, the the, um, Holy Sanctuary, uh, the Temenos supporting uh, the temple is usually located at the highest spot, but in the case of Jerusalem, a compromise had to be reached because the most convenient place um, in terms of um, um, the extent that this, this compound could take was um, on the eastern hill, which is uh, the, or Mount Moriah as it is mentioned in, um, in, in the Hebrew Bible. So Mount Moriah or the Eastern Hill is slightly lower than the um, Western Hill, um, but slightly higher than the City of David, the location of the earliest Bronze and Iron Age cities. I mean, this so is because why, of the
0: water, because of the spring? Because
1: of the water, because yeah. of the dependency for survival of a water spring.
0: Yeah, and you have to be close to it in case you're surrounded by enemies. You can't be separated from your water.
1: Exactly, exactly. And that also, I won't go into detail, but that also caused some challenges with regard to um, creating a secure settlement that could be protected um, despite the relatively low location and the vulnerability as a result of the surrounding hills. But uh, that was a a problem that was uh, solved already during the Bronze Age with with a very monumental fortification and um, monumental um, city walls. The earliest were built um, in 1850 BCE, so it postdates the earliest dwellings. Which date back to the early and middle Bronze Age, and uh, the the the, um, the city that is really um, of importance for the um, Hebrew Bible and um, the New Testament is, of course, the city of David, the Canaanite city that was already in place when um, King David. Um, Conquered the city of Jerusalem from the Jebusites around 1000 BCE, so approximately 3000 years ago. And the city that then developed under King David, um, under King Solomon, under the Israelite kings, and um, this whole question about how, um, um, what do we know about uh, this early Israelite city? How, what is left? What are the traces that are left? And there's a lot of controversy around the fact that we have actually very few remains um, from this period, among others, because the city was destroyed and rebuilt, usually on the rubbles or uh, most of the time, um, not on the foundations of earlier buildings, but in most cases, um, new building um, phases were um, established right on, on bedrock for question of stability so as a result because the city was conquered and rebuilt more than 30 times throughout its um, 5,000 years of history um, the the our data, our physical data from the period of King David and King, King Solomon is very limited and we do have some structural remains and some artifacts um, that correspond more or less uh, to this period as we reconstruct uh, um, the historical contact based not only on, um, on the scriptures but also based on external sources but then there is the question of um, whether we actually accept the fact that these are actual material remains that can be linked to King David, or if those are just material remains that um, uh, that are uh, three thousand years old. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: because,
1: yeah. Um, I mean, in most cases, I mean, it's it's very rare that uh, when we conduct excavations. And we find a palace or we find a dwelling that we uh, will um, excavate the dwelling with an inscription intact that will tell us, hello, I'm uh, I was used as the palace of King David or this is the temple that King Solomon built. Um, So usually there even though when we do do deal with visual and material remains and these are things we can see and touch it is usually only by extrapolation from other external sources that we have to complement the the missing links and complete the picture mm-hmm. so, so there's there's those archaeologists who say well Um, We have uh, the scriptures, we have um, the Hebrew Bible, we have the New Testament that give us some information about King David and his building activities. Um, And uh, we do have um, archaeological findings that complement or that uh, correspond more or less to the time period in question. And so we are convinced that these are Um, remains that should be brought into dialogue with um, King David and his rule. And then there are other archaeologists who take the opposite um, 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 view and and will say, well, we have absolutely no proof for the historicity of of the texts and the archaeological remains are so um, fragmentary, they can not tell us anything, and then there's like the middle route that um, um, many scholars take, and say we believe in the historicity of the of the text and and the fact that there was a King David and that there was a city of David, and the reason that we have so few remains is um, precisely because we know that the city was destroyed and rebuilt so many times and therefore we can't expect to have um, all that many remains from this period.
0: Yeah and um, for me just looking at your sketches um, of the first temple and the second temple and how different they are. The first temple 3000 years ago under um, David or rather Solomon, the Babylonians just destroyed it around 600 BCE and then after the, the, the Jews returned to Israel. Um, They built the second one, which is the one that, you know, Christians will think of because that's the one that Jesus is visiting. Um, But the politics of it, you wrote this very interesting article about how much emphasis King Herod gets. So for, for Christians, especially now at Christmas time, Herod is just this petty tyrant, this little client king of the Romans who are um, distant and not not really interested, but he's clinging to power and he's killing children and and so on. But as you say, there's politics in archaeology. You make a very interesting argument in your article that the reason Herod gets so much attention is because it helps the Christians focus on the time 2000 years ago that they are most interested in, and it allows Uh, israeli jews to say look we were here this long ago long before there was you know 600 years before islam and so on do you want to say anything either about the two temples or the whole herodian emphasis that you that you found so um so striking yeah
1: Yeah, i can i can do both actually um very quickly so the um As you said, the first uh, Jewish temple was built by King Solomon in in the 10th century BCE, around 960 BCE. It was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 BCE. And under uh, the Persian ruler um, Cyrus the Great, um, exiled people were allowed to return to their homelands and rebuild their destroyed temples and, among others, some of the displaced um, Israelites, or by by now Jews, were allowed to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the second temple. So, about fifty years after it was destroyed by the Babylonians, uh, the second Jewish temple was um, was built. Now, in um, Jewish tradition, the new version that was built by King Herod the Great in the second half of the first century BC was actually, is still considered the second Jewish temple, even though it's actually a completely new structure that was built um, by King Herod, supported um, by him financially, uh, but uh, it was actually the the. Jewish priests who who um, who took it upon themselves to construct this newer version or uh, more beautiful and larger version of the Second Jewish Temple, and as I said, in um, Jewish tradition, this is still considered part of the Jewish temple, of the second temple period. But in reality, it was the the Herodian temple was actually the third structure um, serving as a temple to the Jews built on Mount Moriah. And um, the Herodian temple, as probably most of our listeners um, know, was destroyed by the Romans in the year 17. So when when archeologists and historians um, refer to the second temple period, even though the first version of the second temple was built in the sixth century BC, uh, they usually um, think of the Herodian period. That is um, the year when um, King Herod the Great um, came to power in 37 BCE until the day when uh, the Herodian temple or the second Jewish temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 CE, which is not, which doesn't um, correspond to the date of the end of King Herod's great rule. Um, King Herod the Great died in 4 BC, but his sons and grandsons continued to rule over Jerusalem and Judea uh, and the the kingdom. And um, so the Herodian dynasty really only came to an end when the um, Herodian temple in Jerusalem and um, significant parts of the city of Jerusalem were destroyed. Now, um, with regard to your second question and the political dimension of why King Herod, even though he was considered by both Jews and Christians to be a bad person, has somehow risen to a national hero within the context of Um, contemporary Israeli politics is because in contrast to the relatively few physical remains we have from the period of King David and King Solomon in Jerusalem, and where we really need a lot of uh, imagination, a lot of help from the text, from the scriptures and to models and 3D reconstructions to really be able to imagine what Jerusalem, what the city of David may have looked like some 3,000 years ago in the context of Herodian Jerusalem. In terms of what is left, in terms of the urban structure, the urban design, private dwellings where people used to live, in terms of the public architecture, in terms of the Temple Mount platform, we have really very significant remains that are still there, that still very much define the urban landscape of Jerusalem's old city today. And so we need much less help from the scriptures and from... From um 3D models and um creative artists to imagine what it would have looked like, I mean th- these are very um very striking um architectural remains that that are still there that have um survived in in many cases up to um, um ten or twenty meters above the ground very very impressive structures and so it is as as a as a tool that that helps to recreate the judeo-christian heritage it is far more powerful than the very uh, meager remains we have from the time periods of king david and king solomon
0: yeah. Yeah. And that's I think this brings us nicely to our second question, which is how do people today use the past to think about the present and how do they sort of pick and choose and, and uh, sometimes bend the past to their own purposes? And so I'd like to ask you how we should share this holy land between the three great Abrahamic faiths and also about the Netflix miniseries that we both watched called Unorthodox that takes a, um, a, a Jewish girl from New York to Germany, which is where you were born as well, um, and tries to rewrite, or I shouldn't even say that. Maybe you can say that. <laughs> tries to rewrite uh, German ideas about um, Judaism and who owns the land and what the land says. And that that Netflix series is called Unorthodox, which was was quite popular, certainly among my friends, but I had problems with it, I think, you did too. What should we say about the way politics uh, uses history and archaeology for for its narrative today?
1: Yeah. So, um, so that's a huge question, but I'll yeah. try to be succinct and, <laughs> and as clear as I can possibly uh, be here um, within the context of our time limit. Um, so I, I already um, spoke a little bit about how I became aware of um, the relevance of religion and politics for archaeological interpretation and where um, why in the early part of my career I tried to be very careful in how I um, dealt with the data in the ground, below the ground, and above the ground. I mean, a lot of the antiquities are still... Standing monuments that don't have to be dug up, but uh, there's also something um, we refer to as the archaeology of standing monuments. So there's architectural remains above the ground that um, where we use very similar methods to, um, in terms of phase, try to phase and date. building sequences and um different phases of usage and occupation um, same very the methods are very similar to the ones we use for structures that we dig up from from below the ground so um, the more i tried to um actually be sensitive to religious uh, beliefs and political um, orientations and sensitivities, the more I became aware that um, there is very little um, in Jerusalem or or there's actually nothing that can be said without taking the context of its interpretation um, into account. And that everything, from the very beginning, when archaeological excavation started in the mid 19th century, which actually um, was developed, um, um, it was a method that was primarily developed um, by Catholic and Protestant scholars, for the most part, Bible scholars, but also some Orientalists. And um, but it was um, it was a model that was very closely linked to the interest in reading um, the Holy Scriptures and that ultimately then later on influenced um, the first Zionist and uh, Jewish scholars that that then um, started to carry out their own excavations in, in the 1930s and that actually... Um, then evolved almost as a com- competitive effort, a uh, competitive effort um, among these different national schools of archaeology that were established um, in the city of uh, Jerusalem, uh, sort of a competition between. Um, Americans and the British and the French and the Germans and the Italians, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but also a, a competition of different faiths um, where initially it was really a field that was dominated by Protestant and Catholic scholars. Um, suddenly there were these um, um, Jewish scholars who primarily came from Europe who who felt um here we have these Christian scholars, all these uh, foreign, foreign, in quotation marks, uh, national schools that are digging in the land of our forefathers, and we really need to make something to um, um, keep up with their um with, with with their signs and and surpass them if possible so there was a, a, a real competition among all these different groups of archaeologists and um, it hasn't gotten better when even when when the British took over and during the British mandatory uh, period even though there was an increased awareness of um Um, cultural heritage and the fact that um, people who carry out excavations in the Holy land can't just um, take the artifacts that they find and take them home to their home countries. But it it is something that belongs to the people who live locally Um, and, and and the methods of archaeology really um, developed, the, the science of archaeology developed. But um, what I found, um, based on my research for my second book, Finding Jerusalem Archaeology Between Science and Ideology, is that as the scientific methods improved during the course of the British Mandatory Period, during the... Jordanian rule, um, over the old city between 1948 and 1967. And especially once Israel, um, was established and Jerusalem, um, East Jerusalem, um, became occupied by Israel. Um, even though the, the signs, the archeological methodologies really, um, made uh, great advancements it didn't mean that there was less ideology at play mm-hmm. the opposite what i'm showing is that um um ideology and political motivations are are not um forces that are being compromised or eliminated when signs um Becomes more prevalent and more developed, and, and the opposite. Sometimes signs can be used also in other contexts, uh, but I found that this is especially true in the context of Jerusalem. That um, the field has has been really used and misused for um, political agendas.
0: And yeah, yes, right. Yes. And I and I think we should just add, um, in case people forget that this is a moment where first the ottoman empire is disappearing and then in the first world war it's destroyed and so these comparatively very powerful european nation states are can do very much what they want and it's also a moment in history when the idea that a nation and a state should overlap that every you know that we're not going to be austria hungary we're going to be serbia that sort of thing that in yeah. every place there is a national people that claims um, you know that the end of empires uh, where one state would own many, many, many different places with many, many different ethnicities, that vanishes at the exact same time that the Ottoman Empire vanishes, and so all of this is being rewritten by competing voices
1: exactly. Yeah. yes, yeah. thank you uh, for providing the the background on the Ottoman period,
0: right and also between the the the, 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 um, the terror and the holocaust of the second world War. The British are in a position to say, we're going to put a, we need to make a national Jewish state so, you know, so that this never again, we can have an actual never again. And it all happens at the same time.
1: Right, right. Thank you so much yeah. for elaborating on on the context and yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, and uh, unorthodox. Yes, well, I, I must say, I mean, I, I, I also have a lot of friends who very much enjoyed the show. And I actually thought at the beginning I'm all by my all alone, on, <laughs> on, um, being a little bit more critical, and um, I, I didn't find too many uh, colleagues or friends who who shared my views. Uh, but uh, you have actually shared two articles that were quite negative uh, with regard to the show, and which uh, actually highlighted um, one important point, which is. Um that uh, this uh, that the directors of the movies, um, were not from an Orthodox milieu, and they very much came as outsider visiting the ultra-orthodox Hasidic community, the Satmar community, which is the one that is being specifically portrayed in unorthodox. They came for a brief city and looked at the houses, at the streets, at the neighborhood, at the dresses. Um, But they were not really, they did not have much knowledge, insider knowledge, um, critical knowledge to really understand uh, the community and to place them into the larger context of Jewish orthodoxy and Jewish uh, ultra-orthodoxy. And so this is something um, that um, the articles you shared with me, both written by uh, Orthodox women, and, um, Criticized and I, even though I am not Orthodox, I am um, familiar with Orthodoxy and ultra-Orthodox communities in Israel and also outside of Israel, and and I've um, some of my scholarship deals with uh, these communities, and I also felt um, that it was very problematic to provide such a. Uh, um, very negative um, portrayal of this Hasidic community, um, especially in the context of Germany, because mm-hmm. there is very little knowledge about Judaism and very little ability, ability in the German context to dis- distinguish, to make this distinction of um, who is providing this uh, very particular um, one-sided perspective of um, Hasidic Judaism, and and also I felt that it was very insensitive to German history to um, portray Berlin and uh, Germany as the saviors to this uh, mm-hmm. terribly abused young woman. Of all places, it was yeah. Germany um, that was suddenly portrayed as as the place where every, uh, where we see this very international, multicultural society living in peace together and providing a safe haven for this terribly abused young woman.
0: Yeah, so the, the actress, her name is Shira Haas. She's very diminutive. She's, she, she's a small, physically small, and she comes out of um, this conservative community in Williamsburg in New York um where where i visited before you know just kind of like to, to check it out and she is she's just traumatized by her oppressive family she runs away she goes to germany she insinuates herself very quickly into this little community of artists just by bumping into them in the coffee shop and then sort of staying with them in their dormitories and um she she comes there and and they they welcome her immediately and they're all from somewhere else one is from israel one is from yemen one is from nigeria one is from poland they're all happy. They're all very successful musicians. Um, I compare it to uh, one of those United Colors of Benetton commercials where everybody's like cheerful and colorful. Uh, half of them are are gay and very openly gay, and um, and they just have this great little artist community to which she's welcome. But whenever she says like sa- says something about the Holocaust, they all they all sweep it under the rug or not under the rug. They like water under the bridge. It's just not relevant. And it's almost a joke for them. You know, let's, let's go to Hitler's bunker. Just kidding, it's destroyed. Let's see the memorial for the murdered Jews across the street. Let's see the memorial for the murdered homosexuals. That's the castle where the Nazis decided the final solution. Let's go swimming. And then when our protagonist, um, uh, Esty protests that none of this is funny and she lost ha- half of her family which I believe you also did uh, to the Nazis, um, and I did much, to a much lesser extent because I'm Polish, but certainly a lot, I have a lot of people who didn't make it out of that war. Um, Yael, obviously the Jewish friend, says, oh, well, you're not special, so did half of Israel, and this is the quotation she says. She says, we're too busy worrying about our present to be sentimental about the past. So the idea is that in the 22nd century, uh, sorry, 21st century century, like Germany is no longer interested in the in the 20th century and to, to think so is backwards and unfair.
1: Yeah, I actually felt that there were um, two levels of insensitivity <laughs> to um, the Holocaust, which is actually one of the, I mean, this is actually not how I have experienced uh, Berlin. I actually feel that um, their level of um, dealing with the Holocaust and with the this dark past, the the clouds of the um, Second World War and um, and the genocide of the Jews and other um, people persecuted people, I feel that it's it's very laudable. I mean, I, I think um, mm-hmm, Berlin mm-hmm. is really ahead of of. I would say the whole world in, in dealing with the past at a very
0: successful and sophisticated level. Oh, I, I, I want to level. say I, I agree. Yes, I totally yeah, agree. Compared so, to say so Russia in, or Japan.
1: Yeah. So in that regard, I think the 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 series really failed to live up to the level of what Berlin has done in this regard. At another level, it is um, it is actually somehow using. The, um, at least visual references to the Holocaust in a completely in, in a, a different insensitive level. And I don't know if it was intentional or not, but I felt that the moment uh, Esti, um, played by uh, Sheila Haas, uh, decides to uh, leave her ultra-Orthodox communities when they go to to I don't know if it was Wannsee or some other lake in Berlin yes. and there, where um, her friends go swimming, the musicians go swimming, and she decides to actually, I'm I'm ready to, to leave my community and symbolically um, indicative of this uh, decision, she takes off her wig, which ultra-Orthodox women, large majority of the um, Hasidic community wears wigs. She takes the wig off. And she is like, as you said, very, very, she's very, very small and she has, um, I mean, her head was shaved Mm -hmm. like women and and like uh, Jews during the Second World War and she Mm -hmm. walks the water naked. And I mean, I couldn't help myself but to think of the Holocaust and I felt that it was... um, a, yeah. one explicit li- reference that was, I thought, very insensitive
0: and out of place. And
1: yeah, so I didn't yeah, like... Yeah,
0: you're absolutely right. And it's like she had just been wearing a striped outfit and then she had this, you know, second baptism in the Wannsee. Right. Now she's been welcomed back into right. like, Germany. Right. Like, yeah. Right. And you wrote yeah. a whole book about it. What do you think about the attitudes between the moral triangle and how Jews, Germans... And then you also add Palestinians, how they think about the past.
1: Maybe I can go back to, to unorthodox for a moment. Yes, because yes. One other aspect that um, I didn't like so much, and I, I, I'm not aware that anybody wrote about that, uh, which is I'm actually f- familiar with the um, music school that they use as a model for for the series. Which is the Barnbaum Said Academy, and there has been a lot written on that academy, and it's also something I write about in the Moral Triangle. We, my co-author Saeed Chan and I, actually interviewed some um, from from some students from the school, and we've also, of, of course, uh, read the published uh, literature on, on the school and its students who have been written up in. in and another book that also had an anthropological lens and used anthropological um, or, or ethnographic um, um, fieldwork or interviews with students who have studied in the school. And so, I mean, I very much believe in, in, in their goal to create a bridge through music and to bring Arab and Jewish students together. And while it may be successful at some level, there's also a lot of students who, who report on going to the school because of the musical level and because it provides them an opportunity that they would not have otherwise and that they're willing to, to make music alongside or together with uh, people they consider their enemy, and that it somehow works despite the fact that they are enemies. So it's it's not. Um, so with regard to the school that they use as a model, it's not as successful, and it's not as easy as the movie tries to make it look like. But there's um, also um, a lot of literature on on Berlin about the uh, migrant communities and about about this desire of the city of Berlin to describe itself and to sell itself as uh, multicultural. There's actually a lot of problems um, about... um, the difficulties of integrating um, migrant communities, the Muslim community, Muslim uh, refugees. There is the problem of having created parallel societies where Germans live quite separately from um, migrant communities um, and where there is a lot of fears and a lot of bad press. And uh, about uh, violence and criminality and, and um, unemployment among um, Muslim communities or, or um, um, refugee communities, which is actually not true. I mean, um, there is not an increased level of, of criminality or violence as a result of uh, the refugee communities. And I mean, there is a lot of problems and um And the series makes Berlin look like um, a safe haven, uh, a very successful model of multicultural cohabitation as the savior of this um, badly um, abused um, Orthodox Jewish woman.
0: No, that's right. And and she could have moved to Jerusalem or Tel Aviv. She could have moved to Los Angeles. She's living in New York. Right? Yes. And the, the weirdest thing is her estranged mother who was ejected from this Orthodox community sends her these documents with 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 the stamps of the Third Reich proving her uh, ancestry from Germany. And she's like, aha, I am a German. Uh, here's my safe place. With with these documents, <laughs> with the swastika and the eagle and everything else stamped all over them, she's like, I'm going to Germany.
1: Yes. Yes. <laughs> and and that brings me to your the the other question about the moral triangle, which yes, um, yes. really deals with this very complicated situation um, of the is, uh, recent um, Israeli migrant community um, that has settled in Berlin with a more established. Pal- and much larger, almost twice as large Palestinian community that lives in in Berlin, and their relationship with each other, but also their relationship with Germans. And um, the with the big central question we ask in this book, um, to what extent is Germany and are Germans today, responsible what happened during the Second World War but also towards uh, the current migrant community specifically the Israeli and Palestinian migrant community that lives in in Berlin there are roughly 30,000 uh, Israelis and about 60,000 Palestinians who currently live currently live in in Berlin. So what is Germans and Germany's? responsibility towards these migrant populations who live in Berlin, um, but also with regard to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict towards the populations who live in the Middle East, because uh, we all know that the establishment of uh, the state of Israel was not a completely disconnected reality from Um, the events of the Second World War, it was very much historically um, linked. Mm -hmm. The fact that uh, the world was largely supportive of creating a Jewish state in Palestine.
0: Yeah. Um, I don't want to take more of your time because you have very kindly given me an an hour, but would you like to have a a last word and sort of say the conclusion that you have discovered from your many, many interviews with... uh, well, I, I actually don't see why Germans would feel responsible for Palestinian refugees. I understand, of course, why they have a great debt to Jews. But uh, what what did you discover? What do the Germans think? What do the um, Jewish uh, diaspora living in Berlin today or the Palestinian community there think?
1: I think there are many um, Germans who would agree with you that um, there is this uh, great responsibility that um, contemporary Germans have taken on themselves as descendants of uh, the Germans who who were um, responsible for... Um, um um, creating the Third Reich and for participating in the policies and execution and murdering of, of many Jews um, so um, many Germans feel I mean we, we we take responsibility even though it wasn't us directly but um, we live in Germany, we call ourselves German and um, we feel that we have a great responsibility to deal with um, with to understand what happened how can we prevent this from happening in the past and as a result we also have great responsibility not only to the israelis who come to live in germany but to jews in general and to israel as a state to make sure that uh, jews will always have a country where um, where they are safe and secure um, from other nations that may want to to kill Jews or hurt Jews. And so, yeah, there are many um, Germans who who feel like that, but there are also um, many Germans who feel because it is um, partially as a consequence of what happened during the Holocaust, that Israel was established as a Jewish state in Palestine, where the majority of the local population was actually... Muslim and Christian, and original to the land, and where many um, lost their lives and their homes and livelihoods and had to escape, which ultimately created the Palestinian refugee crisis. Since we are responsible for the creation of the state of Israel for its security, we're indirectly also responsible for the refugee situation and the situation of Palestinian statelessness that we've created. So many Germans feel we are equally responsible for Palestinians. Got it. And perhaps the biggest irony is that most Israelis who who, um, come to Berlin and live in Berlin are not unlike me, relatively critical of the Israeli government and Israeli policies with regard to the occupation and with regard to um, having different um, laws for Christians and Muslims and Palestinians who live in Israel and in the occupied territories. And so there's ironically, I mean, there's this um, very interesting dynamic between uh, Germans and Israelis, where Germans are on the one hand extremely happy that there is this revival of Jewish life in Berlin, in Germany, that there are so many Israelis who come and make a new life for themselves in Berlin and feel very safe and very happy to live in Germany. Um, and and so they really celebrate. Uh, Germans, for the most part, celebrate. I'm, I'm not talking about uh the growing um, um, Mm right-wing
0: forces in Germany.
1: But uh, for the most part, Germans are very proud that there are all of these um, Israelis who come and settle in Berlin. On the other hand, they feel also very uncomfortable when these Israelis don't perform their Judaism or their Israeliness according to their... um, expectations and criticize the Israeli government and are actually speaking up for the human rights of Palestinians. And yeah, so that's, I felt was a very interesting dynamic.
0: That is a a supremely interesting study. And I especially loved um, the archaeology of Jerusalem. And I thank you so much for taking this hour with me. And I enjoyed it. Immensely, and I learned a lot from you.
1: It was a real pleasure for me, Chris. Thank you so much. Thank you.
0: Chris Udinitz and Katy Galor recorded this conversation on January 4th, 2023. It was the feast day of St. Elizabeth Ann Bailey Seton, or Mother Seton. She was born a wealthy New York Episcopalian, married a businessman, and had five kids. But after her husband died in 1805, she converted to Catholicism and opened a school in Boston to support her family, later a second school in Baltimore. It was the beginning of Catholic education in America, and Mother Seton also founded the Sisters of Charity, the first American religious community for women to support her parochial schools. Our music is from Josh and Margot of the Great Space Coaster Band. Check them out at www.gscoasterband.com. Our logo of the dog is from the Dominican Friars of England, Scotland, and Wales at www.english.op.org I'm Chris Odenius. I thank you for listening and I invite you to email me at almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com I'll talk to you soon. Sleep,